Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. TikTok timeline, the U.S. government reviewing Oracle's deal this week. Fraud fears as Nikola Motors defends itself. We'll hear from leading critic Andrew Left. And Delta's decision, the CEO speaking exclusively to CNN about saving jobs and boosting diversity. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. to all our first movers around the globe. We've got a high-flying show for you Tuesday, as I mentioned, as I mentioned to the CEO of Delta Airlines joining us to discuss jobs, diversity, and of course, the ongoing travel turbulence. Meanwhile, on track for takeoff, US stocks looking to add to the snapback rally yesterday with tech recapturing around half now of last week's losses and without the help of heavyweight fang stocks like Amazon, Facebook, Alphabet and Netflix. You can see the close there. Apple, though, providing some juice up 3% in anticipation, perhaps, of today's virtual product launch. Details on that coming right up. We also saw a Tesla turnaround. It was up some 12%, like last week's pullback virtually never happened. Vaccine news and deal-making in the technology space also helping sentiment here. But so apparently is the economic outlook in Germany. Investor confidence at 20-year highs. That's also given a lift to markets. In China too, August retail sales rose for the first time this year. The industrial production numbers there looking strong too. That all helping to take the yuan to its highest levels of 2020. We've also got Fresh signs that the U.S. consumer remains resilient too. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon reportedly saying the bank could release some of the billions of dollars worth of loan reserves that they'd held in case loans went bad. So that would be a positive sign too. But you can still expect the Federal Reserve policymakers to strike a continued cautious tone. Their two-day policy meeting begins today, especially, of course, given that we're now unlikely to see fresh financial aid before the U.S. presidential election. No end of things to discuss today. Let's get to the drivers. We begin with the U.S. Treasury Department reviewing TikTok's plan to partner with American software giant Oracle. It's unclear if the deal, which is not described as an outright sale, will resolve the security concerns that the U.S. government says it has. Selena Wang joins us now from Hong Kong on this. Selena, and I know you've been following this incredibly closely. For me, it's a question of, is this a security risk or not? If it is, we need a more comprehensive deal, the like that Microsoft was offering. If it isn't, then the U.S. government here has to back down and allow the Oracle babysitting deal to go ahead. What do we make of this? 
Julie, we've been talking about this deal for weeks, and in the beginning, Trump was saying that he demanded this app be sold off, divested, or else shut down. Now what we're seeing, Julia, is a very much watered-down version of what Trump had initially asked for. We're seeing a partnership where Oracle will be the, quote, trusted technology partner of ByteDance. Now, sources have told me that that means this wouldn't be an outright sale. Oracle could be providing some cloud services, cloud computing, provider to TikTok that it could also be storing some American user data on its servers. But this is a far cry from what Trump had initially asked for. And you're already seeing criticism coming from lawmakers, including Republican Senator Josh Hawley, who said that ByteDance still should pursue a full sale, urging CFIUS to not approve this deal, saying that this app should be, quote, rebuilt from the ground up to remove any trace of Chinese Communist Party influence. Yes. So it's going to come down to uh, the Treasury Secretary and the U.S. administration to decide what they're happy with after uh, all the accusations of um, security risks. Is it one or isn't it? Selena, does Beijing, who clearly likes the idea of the Oracle deal more than Microsoft, do they even need the United States? I'm just looking at some of the numbers of how many users they've got in China now and actually how those uh, content creators are monetizing this platform. Do they even care that much? about U.S. users? Well, Julia, I first want to mention what you earlier said about Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin saying that this would potentially lead to 20,000 jobs in the United States, suggesting that CFIUS is currently reviewing it. Beijing also may have some leverage over this. As you referenced to, Beijing probably prefers this deal because it may not result in the transfer of the very coveted, important artificial intelligence recommendation algorithm for ByteDance. As for whether or not it needs the United States, this certainly isn't what ByteDance founder Zhang Yiming had envisioned. He wanted to build this into the first truly global Chinese consumer technology company that can compete with the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Googles of the world. It's not just facing these hurdles in the United States. They're dealing with an app ban in India, where it was one of more than 100 Chinese apps to be banned by the Indian government on the grounds of national security. These Chinese companies, as they're going global, are realizing just how damaging these geopolitical dramas between China and many other countries are proving for their global ambitions, not to mention that there's also a ton of competition in China and it faces a lot of slowdown as well. The economy in China is not growing as fast as it used to be. Digital consumption is starting to reach saturation. Yeah, it's so fascinating, isn't it? You mean wanting to build a a giant that could compete in places like the United States with the likes of Amazon and Facebook, as you mentioned. And yet those guys can't compete in China because the doors are locked. Fascinating. We shall see, Selena, plenty more column inches and discussions to be dedicated to this story, I'm sure. Selena Wag, thank you so much for that. All right, Amazon hiring once again the company looking to recruit 100,000 workers to meet surging levels of e-commerce demand. FedEx is also hiring 70,000 mostly temporary workers in the run-up to the holidays. Those two stories very much connected. Matt Egan joins me now. It is great to have the capacity for consumers and to make sure that we can get things over the internet rather than having to be in shops during COVID. But there's a cost of this, and that is lots of smaller retail businesses are being lost and the power is being consolidated in the hands of these giants. I think that's right, Julie. I think there's two big takeaways here. One, the pandemic has dramatically accelerated the rise of e-commerce. 
I don't know about you, Julia, but I mean, I'm buying everything online these days, everything from uh, baby food to furniture uh, to groceries. Um, but I was always doing a lot of online shopping. What's interesting is the health crisis has forced a lot of people who were maybe reluctant. They wanted to go in person. Um, they're doing more shopping now on Amazon Target, Walmart, and you know that all of those goods have to get shipped. And so that's why we've seen Amazon and FedEx ramp up their hiring. What's interesting is that FedEx is hiring the, the, this holiday uh, ramp up that they do every year. It's 27% more than they hired uh, a year ago. But the other big takeaway is, to your point, um, big companies are booming right now. I mean, Amazon is worth $1.5 trillion. Small businesses, many of them are struggling. There was a study out uh, just last week showing that something like two-thirds of New York restaurants would go out of business as soon as January if they didn't get any more government support. We talk a lot about uh, stock market records falling, uh, but what gets lost in those headlines is that the Russell 2000, which tracks smaller companies, is down um, 8% this year. Uh, It's getting left behind by the S&P 500, which is up 5%. Amazon, of course, is up 68%. And so basically, the big companies are getting bigger. The smaller are struggling just to survive. And Julia, to your point, that really does concentrate power among the biggest companies. Those companies have the power, the influence to set worker conditions and wages. So we need to watch this trend play out. Yeah. And therein lies the key. When you have that power, you get to choose whether you pay them more or you pay them less. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that. Now, a historic ceremony taking place at the White House today. Israel will sign an accord to normalize ties with not one, but two Arab nations, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. John Defteris is in Abu Dhabi with all the details. The message here, John, I think stronger together, whether that's tackling other big worrying nations like Iran or economic ties, trade ties going forward. Talk us through this. Well, it always helps to have a common enemy. It's an incentive, let's put it that way, although I think the security tensions will rise in the region as a result of these uh, alignments that are taking place. But business can be the glue that keeps the Gulf states and Israel closer together. And I think the club will expand, Julie, as well. Uh, to extend west to Morocco. The king of Morocco and the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, by the way, were childhood friends. So it seems like a common next step here in terms of motivations. But let's look at the two principles that first signed on to this, uh, the UAE and Israel. And it really boils down to, and you have to think about this, the phone lines were blocked two months ago, and now we're at normalization. Uh, This is a simple strategy, very strategic one, but the UAE position is we have to occupy the seat at the table. Here's the Minister of State for Foreign Affairs. In our assessment has not worked. And you know, we look really at the Egyptian peace overtures and initiatives uh, of the late 70s and 80s as a successful episode in uh, Arab-Israeli sort of uh, narrative. And we look also at the Jordan Agreement overall as also successful. So what do you draw from that? You draw from that is that the empty chair approach, the no communication approach, uh, you know, the sort of high rhetoric approach doesn't really help anybody. Anwar Gargash with our Becky Anderson. You'll hear the full interview in the next hour on Connect the World. 
and special coverage over the next three hours of this signing ceremony uh, in Washington. So what do we have here, Julia? At the heart of the Gulf, a deal with Israel, and what did they build? The first priorities. Let's take a quick look here. Uh, medical, technology, and banking. Don't look at the dollar amount. This is about strategies going forward, how they leverage each other. It opens up a market for Israel, if you think about it, in the broader Arab world of 400 million consumers, UAE with better than a trillion dollars of sovereign wealth, looking for technologies, security, defense strategies from Israel. Uh, this could be something that would be much wider ranging as time goes on and adding the other Gulf states. We have to watch Saudi Arabia very carefully going forward. They opened up the airspace, but do they really sign on to normalization going forward? We have to see. Um very quickly here, John, because we were just showing a chart of uh, Iran, and I think this is really important. Some of the facts and figures on Iran here, the priority here simply is to, to limit their powers and isolate them more on, a, on an economic basis, surely. Yes, I don't mean to sound cynical, uh, Julia, but I think this uh, normalization is also a hedge against the election uh, in November if Donald Trump yeah. survives or not. So they want to maintain that pressure on Iran. Uh, you saw the numbers there, a contraction of 6% this year, but 20% over three years, unemployment at 16%, oil production down from 3.5 million down to 1.9 million. Uh, again, this will be tense as it goes forward, but already Donald Trump was threatening Iran, saying any strike against the U.S. in any way will have a heavy response. That's kind of the language after this normalization for sure. Yeah, we'll be cynics together, John. John Defterius in Abu Dhabi. Thank you for that. Mm. We'll have a lot more coverage, as John said, of the events throughout the day on CNN, including an extended edition of Connect the World around that signing ceremony. In the meantime, more stories making headlines around the world. This was the scene in Phoenix, Arizona on Monday, where President Trump's supporters packed together for an indoor rally aimed at courting Latino voters. As you can see, very few masks, no social distancing. It comes as nearly 195,000 Americans have died from coronavirus. Now, before heading to Phoenix, the president traveled to California for a briefing on the wildfires ravaging the western United States. At least 36 people have died in dozens of fires that have now decimated nearly two million hectares. But the president refused to acknowledge the role climate change is likely playing in fueling the flames. He said he expects conditions to improve. It'll start getting cooler. I you wish just, you just watch. I wish science agreed with you. <laughs> Hey, well, I don't think science knows, actually. Now, while wildfires burn in the west, a hurricane is threatening the southeastern U.S. Sally is crawling towards the Gulf Coast, already dropping pounding rain on the area as it nears landfall. A Hurricane Hunter's aircraft flew over the storm to give us this up-close look. Ed Lavendera is in uh, Mississippi for us. Ed, great to have you with us. What more can we expect in the coming hours? Just talk us through it. Well, in the immediate hours, it is just a wait-and-see game, and that is because Hurricane Sally uh, sits off the Mississippi-Alabama Gulf Coast and is just moving at a painfully slow pace. Um, and so it is going to take some time for that storm to make it ashore. In fact, the eye of this hurricane uh, might not come ashore until sometime tomorrow morning on Wednesday. So uh, that raises the concerns here. Not only is it a low-level hurricane strength storm, uh, but as the amount of rain will continue to fall on this area, flooding be will become a major story in the coming days. So far, we haven't seen much rain on the coast and on the shoreline so far, 
The storm sits out this way to the east of us where we are in Gulfport, Mississippi. Um, and that is where uh, many people here who have spent the last few days preparing for this hurricane are simply just waiting. So they are uh, filling up sandbags, fortifying their businesses and homes uh, because inland is where that all of this water is going to get pushed north into Mississippi, Alabama, parts of Florida and southeast Louisiana as well. So that is going to be the concern. And we have seen residents preparing for this. And it's a reminder that 15 years ago, this is the exact same part of the Gulf Coast that was dealing uh, with the horror and the tragedy of Hurricane Katrina um, that was so so much uh, leveled so much devastation on this region of, of the Gulf Coast. But many residents here will tell you anything below a category two hurricane, they are willing to ride it out. Uh, so we have seen very few people evacuating this region. They say that they're willing to stick around and ride out this storm here. Uh, so you're not seeing mass evacuations. Uh, but right now it's just a wait and see game uh, as emergency officials are, have urged people to make sure they have enough emergency supplies to last for several days because once the storm comes ashore, it's going to be, uh, a, if it keeps moving as slow as it's moving right now, uh, the flooding and the extended amount of rain is going to be what causes the most concern here over the next couple of days. Julia? Yeah, absolutely. Get prepared, as, or at least as prepared as you can right now. Ed, great to have you with us. Thank you for that and stay safe. Ed Lavendera there in Gulfport, Mississippi. All right, still to come here on First Move. No more furloughs. That's the message from Delta to flight attendants and ground crew. We'll speak exclusively to the CEO. And we also have got famed short seller Citroen Research's take on electric truck maker Nikola Motors. This is accusations of fraud fly back and forth. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. stocks look set to rise for a second straight session. Not so, though. Nikola Motors once again under pressure pre-market. Noted short seller Andrew Left of Citroen Research pledged to cover half of any legal expenses for another research firm, Hindenburg, which has publicly accused the electric vehicle company Nikola of fraud. This comes three months after Citroen tackled Nikola itself, comparing its technical achievements unfavorably with Tesla at a similar stage. Shortly after Nikola's IPO, when its shares were trading at around $65, Citroen tweeted, Nikola back to $40 in a month. The anti-Tesla, if you buy here, you deserve to lose your dollars, considering Milton sold just a week ago at $10. When Tesla had this market cap, the Model S was scaled and the X was produced. We've got that tweet. We'll show it to you if we can find it. Johnny is now founder of Citroen Research, Andrew Left. Andrew, fantastic to have you with us. I feel like you saw this one coming. Good morning and great to have you with us. Well, I understand investors have an appetite for the next Tesla, but we have to remember that before Tesla stock actually became a phenomenon, that company went IPO. They had to actually produce the car. The car was under rave reviews by Consumer Reports, widely accepted, mass-produced, Model S, and then the stock followed suit. Uh, So with Nikola, we have the complete opposite. Uh, And also, please never confuse an Elon Musk with Trevor Milton. So that, those are two major factors. Why? I mean, they're two different people. For me, I saw Trevor's response on Twitter 
to the criticisms of his company two days ago. And that's really all you had to see. He put out a three-minute profanity-laced rant that was childish, amateurish, had no intellectual vigor to it whatsoever, not at all what Elon Musk would do. Just deliver the vehicles. That's all you have to do. It's not a schoolyard fight. It's not, I'm richer than you. This is the stock market. Deliver your vehicles. I mean, to be fair to um, to Milton, they did put out a number of points where they said, look, this is not true. I mean, we've got a few of these here. They mischaracterized the quote by a Bosch employee that was talking about future production plans that they'd been designing and engineering and working on their own inverters was something else. The accusation was they were just mis- relabeling someone else's. They said that uh, Hindenburg misrepresents their historic position on battery technology. I think what the most visual one was, was the Nikola One, their first prototype, where uh, they acknowledged that when we saw a video of this vehicle moving, it wasn't under its own propulsion. Uh, they've moved on, I mean, that, obviously, from the Nikola One, but, but this, I think, is a problem for them. Well, it just shows the quality of the company, uh, it's the honesty of the company. When you're paying $10, $15 billion for a startup company with an unproven product, you would like to think that what they put out is actually true and what you see, what your eyes see, is actually what it is. So now them backtracking saying, well, we never actually said that the, co- that the truck was moving on its own propulsion doesn't really hold much weight with investors. And like I said, and when you hear Trevor respond to it, it just does not give you the comfort that I would want as an investor. So that alone, when I see the company's response and their body language, makes me believe they're covering more things up. Mind you, of course there's going to be wrong things. If Hindenburg puts out a story or any short story puts out 100 points, can I go ahead and, and have a straw man argument and take three or four that might not be true? Of course. But it doesn't take away from the quality of the point that this company is not what it says it is. You are already raising concerns. And I think that's the point I wanted to make. Were you short this stock? Because then we saw the the GM deal announced, the $2 billion investment, the stock price soared. And then Hindenburg came out and were like, hang on a second, we think this is fraud. Were you short? Yeah, I was not short. I, I, after I read the report, I, I guess I shorted the stock. I thought it was quite obvious. Uh, the GM deal was not what it appeared to be. GM got a sweetheart deal with production and manufacturing. It wasn't a straight deal. If people remember like Mercedes and Toyota were both early investors in Tesla. It was a whole different dynamic. So I think investors in their search for the next Tesla are grabbing onto anything. And in this case, it's Nikola. There are many EV makers. I just think the quality of management, the quality of their claims that they've made have really fallen short. And we have to remember, where was Tesla before the market gave it a $10, $12 billion market cap? Trevor, be quiet. Stop threatening people. Produce your vehicles. That's it. I guess he would argue that that's what this GM deal is about, given that they're using their technology, their battery technology um, in particular. Andrew, are you still short? Because I do think this is important. It's a really expensive short now. Well, I'm still short the stock. I understand it's not. There's always an ability to pull a, comp, a rabbit out of a hat. And there's and I have to respect the, the retail investor on the other side who, who will bid up anything. So you know, when you say am I still short? Yes, the size of position is not as big as, as I probably want it to be uh, for that reason, just out of respect to the market. But I believe that Nikola is definitely covering something up and the company's responses, their body language. And most of all, watch for, on his own Twitter Watch Trevor's response and it'll make you 
as a shareholder, kind of cringing your seat a little bit. Well, we've uh, we've put an offer out to Trevor Milton and to Hindenburg to come on and, and talk us through. So they, they have the opportunity to come on. Andrew, Jim Chaynos called this period of time that we're in the, the golden age of fraud, where we've got all this stimulus sloshing around. It effectively lifts all boats. It's tough to pick pick out the bad eggs or the, the sort of the companies that you have issues with, particularly in this case, when it's so expensive to get hold of the stock to be able to short it. Is there a risk that we see a sort of Hertz-like situation here where even when the company's bankrupt, the stock goes up? There's a risk here that people get burned if they're short this stock. Well, if you mean Nikola, the answer is yes. I mean, retail investors can buy the stock and the stock market's a game of supply and demand. As for the golden age of fraud, most definitely it is. We're saying, or if not fraud, we'll say misleading or dreams or unrealistic expectations. But, you know, that's what the Fed has created. And that's the market that people are invested in. So as long as they're cautious and not too heavily invested in any one speculative investment, uh, you know, investors can be okay with it. But it's as a short seller, it's truly dangerous and interesting times. Uh, I spend more. I'm probably my book is definitely more long biased than short. And all my short names have definitive catalysts attached to them. Or my conviction level is just way beyond uh, things that I've never seen before. So, yeah, you have to be um, you have to have high convictions in this market if you're going to go against the tide. And just to your point, because you calibrated, you think Nikola is fraud. No doubt. I, I, that's what I believe. Yes. Andrew, great to have you with us. Come back and talk to us soon because there's always a million other things I can talk about. This is just one specific story. <laughs> Come back soon, please, sir. And thank you for waking Love up so early. Andrew left there from Citroen Research. And as I mentioned, open invitation for uh, Nicola and Hindenburg to get back on the show and come and talk to us about both of these issues. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. stock markets are up and running this Tuesday. As expected, it's a higher open. The technology sector adding to Monday's near 2% jump. Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank saying last week's tech trouncing has run its course. Morgan Stanley Wealth Management says the sell-off was technical in nature and not a broader sentiment shift. Also helping that sentiment, a positive reading on the Chinese consumer retail sales there rising for the first time this year for the month of August. And in the United States, dare I say it, a glimpse of stimulus hope as well. A bipartisan, yes, bipartisan group of House members proposing a sweeping $2 trillion emergency aid proposal in the hopes of jump-starting stalls negotiations. Extended benefits to jobless workers have virtually dried up since August. On that note, news breaking this hour too. Delta Airlines announcing it will not furlough any more flight attendants or ground-based employees. In the U.S., workers that are furloughed are typically unpaid but get to keep their benefits, such as health insurance, if they have it. The company says voluntary redundancies taken by 20% of its workforce have saved other jobs. And I'm pleased to say we're joined by Delta CEO Ed Bastian for an exclusive interview. Ed, fantastic to have you back with us and great to have you back with us with some welcome good news here. A huge effort, I think, by the company to save more jobs. Well, thanks, Julia. Great to be with you. Yes, it was really good news that we could share with the vast majority of our people that their hard work uh, throughout the pandemic and the voluntary uh, unpaid leaves of absence that up to 40,000 of our people have taken 
during this period of time, plus we also had a very uh, large subscription to early retirement offers and other job sharing opportunities that shared sacrifice is going to enable us to uh, eliminate the need for any furloughs of any, uh, any of our ground staff, any of our flight attendants. We're still working with our pilots union. Uh, we still have a couple of weeks. Hopefully we can, we can get some uh, progress made to save uh, jobs on the pilot ranks as well. But for many, many Delta people, it's great news, and I'm really appreciative of their sacrifice and, and shared sacrifice at that. Yeah, you're emphasizing the word sacrifice, and it's sad to see um, any amount of workers go, but it is clearly an incredibly difficult time. You mentioned the pilots. Is the probability, the likelihood still that you'll have to let some of them go? If we don't get uh, progress made in the discussions, we're talking to the union. We still have a couple of weeks before the uh, CARES Act uh, furlough protection uh, expires at the end of September. Uh, we have 1,900 uh, pilots that we have been forced to issue warn notices to. Uh, I'm hopeful that we can we can make progress to mitigate uh, as many of those uh, furloughs as possible. Uh, we still have time. And can I just assume? Can we assume that this decision and the the news this morning is not dependent on even a clean extension of the the financial aid that the government's provided? It's irrespective of whether you get that or you don't. That's, that's correct, Julia. Yeah. We didn't know uh, where the government, we still don't know where the government's going to come out with a, a CARES Act II stimulus extension, so we needed to take matters into our own hands. And the people of Delta did what they always do. It's what we call the Delta difference. Uh, they stepped up and they made sacrifices to protect the jobs of so many, and I'm really appreciative of the great work. You know, it's interesting. I've read the whole memo. I've got it here in front of me. And you're saying, look, we're still flying just 30 percent of the passenger volumes that we had this time last year. The cash burn still $750 million a month here. Despite the financial challenges, I know the other sort of big news that you've announced in the past week or so is the extended fee waiver for changing flights beyond 2020 for domestic flights in the United States. If people want to change the flights, you're saying, look, effectively, you can do it for free. This is, this is big news, too. It goes back to your point about people before profits. Yes, it does. We've been looking at that for some time. Uh, we, we had told the market we were considering making changes to any fees that our customers view as punitive and finding other ways by which we can provide value to them. And when the pandemic hit, it was a perfect time to eliminate change fees for the year, giving people peace of mind to be able to book their travel during an uncertain period. And as we saw customers' reactions and the strength of, of, that, uh, of that decision, uh, we decided to eliminate change fees permanently from our structure. So one more reason why customers can book on Delta confident that, they're, that we'll be there for them. And if their plans change, uh, they won't have to go through uh, a, a punitive fee that they, they view as something that, uh, that doesn't create the flexibility they need in their travels. Ed, given all the challenges you're facing and, and the battles, not just now, but beyond in this industry, I think it would be an easy 
or it will be forgiven perhaps to let important issues like <laughs> looking at diversity in the company slide. But I know you're not. I've been reading another memo that you sent out to say, look, we've got an action plan to tackle this. And I've had many conversations with, with CEOs on and off TV that said that they thought they were doing really well with diversity, but then they broke it down to their African-American employment, particularly at higher levels of leadership, and they realized they had more work to do. Talk us through, Ed, the action plan. That, that, that's absolutely correct, Julia. And, and being here in Atlanta, the birthplace in our country for the civil rights movement, huh. we have a special responsibility to take care of our, our black colleagues and black community. We look at people of color within Delta. They, they make up over 40 percent of our employee base. And we're doing re- relatively well in total on diversity, about 35% of our leadership is our people of color and about uh, close to 20% of our officers are people of color. But when you disaggregate the data, and that's been one of the big learnings for me to get deeper into the data during this period of time and see the specific numbers for our black colleagues, uh, you're right, we're, we've got about 20% of our employees are black, yet only 7% of the officers, the top 100 people in the company are black. So we know we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, the leadership levels are about 15% are black, but we have, we have major steps that we're taking. So everything from understanding better the, the plight and the challenge that our black community face uh, to scrubbing uh, hiring specs and qualification standards to make sure that we don't overstate the qualification requirements for leadership jobs. There's many leadership jobs in this company that do not require four-year degrees or even any merit, merit employee uh, job at, at all, uh, really questioning the, the, any of those barriers, those uh, hidden barriers to, to bringing the, the black community forward to making certain that we're well represented uh, throughout the community, whether it's in hiring with the historically black colleges and universities, many of which we have here in the Southeast, and making certain we're doing everything we can, because we know it's a long journey. This is something that's going to take time. Uh, This is something the pandemic has taught us, uh, a a lesson of humility, uh, a lesson of vulnerability, and it's allowed for us to hear their voices more clear than ever, and it's time for us to step up. Yeah, I, you know, I think the point about the benchmarks for leadership hiring and college degrees, we've talked about this on the show before. This is such a critical component. So we certainly welcome that. And I know you're doing all sorts of literary programs and literacy programs in the community there as well in Atlanta. And you have a, a, an internship for female pilots from minority communities, which I love too. Ed, how do we benchmark this? How do we make sure that even when you say, look, this is our new talent strategy, this is the pipeline, we're going to be talking to suppliers of minority communities as well and businesses in those communities, how do you benchmark progress? What's the plan there? I I think that's a good question, Julia. I, I don't quite know how we can benchmark progress against others because a lot of the data isn't out there. Uh, We've tried to increase the transparency, so we'll be benchmarking against ourselves. Uh, We've we've put out a goal for some time on the supplier community that we want to be a member of what's called the $1 billion roundtable or club, $1 billion a supplier uh, partner investment uh, within, within the company, and we'll hit that, and hopefully we'll be increasing that. But the benchmark for me is is within our own family here. Um, I I take this personally. Uh, All 75,000 
of our employees within Delta, I consider part of my family. Uh, we're, we, tr we treat our, our colleagues uh, the way we want uh, to be treated ourselves, and that puts them in great position to take great care of customers. And when you take it personally, you realize how much work we've got to do. So we're, we're, we're overcoming not decades, but centuries of disadvantage here. And uh, being in a position of privilege that we are, we have a higher responsibility to act than ever before. Yeah, I like that idea. Benchmarking against others, perhaps you end up doing uh, the minimum. If you benchmark against yourself, then uh, you fly the flag. Ed, always a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you so much for that. Ed Bastian, CEO of Ju Delta Airlines. We'll continue. Thanks, we will continue Great to the conversation, you. no doubt. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Bye. All right, up next, the fintech company D-Local, providing the rails for Amazon, Uber, and Spotify to access Latin America, We'll speak to the CEO of Uruguay's newly minted unicorn. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. D-Local is fintech's latest unicorn. It's also Uruguay's first. The platform connects emerging market payment methods, a whole host of them, to international banking systems. It's basically a bridge for global companies like Amazon, Uber and Spotify to buy and sell services in markets where money doesn't move through traditional banking channels. All right, joining us now is Sebastian Kanovich. He's co-founder and CEO of D-Local. Fantastic to have you on the show. Did I get the explanation right there of what you guys provide? Julia, first of all, thanks very much for, for having me. Uh, yes, I think the explanation you did, it's, it's exactly accurate. Great. Fundamentally, we like to think of ourselves as an infrastructure player. So you mentioned the bridge, uh, and that's definitely what we do. We help uh, international companies like Amazon, like Spotify, uh, to collect payments and pay in markets like Nigeria, Brazil, India, Turkey. So essentially those which are outside of the US and Europe. I mean, these companies have enough to do connecting with local businesses, setting up themselves and operating their own business. If they have to worry about what payment, what digital payments can be used, what credit cards, what individual nation, um, particularly for nations that aren't um, or have a high degree of people who are unbanked, if they have to worry about that, it's an additional headache. You basically take care of that and give them one system. Sure. So in some of the markets where we operate, uh, up to 80% of the population won't have an international credit card. Uh, and obviously, these are markets that are becoming more and more relevant for, for international companies. Uh, we mentioned Amazon, we mentioned Uber, but this also applies to Chinese companies, which are growing heavily into emerging markets. So what we do is we make sure that users are being able to pay with their preferred payment method. If anything, we've seen that there's more and more payment methods uh, appearing. Uh, there's more fragmentation and it just becomes impossible from a merchant perspective to accept all of those without uh, a company like ours and others uh, to, uh, that help uh, bridge that gap. And now you're operating with 450 merchants in 20 different countries, I believe, and the connectivity for, to more than 300 alternative payment methods. Up until this point, you'd not raised money, you'd bootstrapped, you'd grown that big with your own resources. Why take money now and what are you going to do with it? So number one, it's, uh, we are obviously very proud of, of, of the path we've taken. We decided to bootstrap this company. To be honest, we, we started out of Uruguay and there wasn't a lot of venture funding available. So it's, it's not a, 
it's not that we did that we had much more options but to go down this route uh, we love the partners we brought on board we love what ga brings to the table we love what addition and leafixel uh, brings uh, we love the experience they have in previous companies so we thought that uh, at this scale it, it was a time to to really get an international global partner that would help us continue to scale so that drove the decision uh, the idea going forward is we're going to stick to our uh, mission ambition of uh, helping these top 514 uh, companies, but hopefully get them across. Today it's 20 markets. Hopefully in 18 months' time it's going to be 35 markets, uh, uh, and that's what we're going to be doing. I mean, this is pretty phenomenal in terms of the rate of growth that we're talking about. I think all of our viewers and people understand that COVID and the challenges that have presented have accelerated the push towards e-commerce to the use of digital payments, for example. But, you know, are you biting off more than you can chew, increasing to a further 15 markets over the space of, what, 18 months you mentioned there? That's a lot of work. It's a, it's a great question. Uh, and actually, that's something we, we ask ourselves a lot with the team. But if you look at it, we still say uh, it's today it's 20 market, it's going to be 35. But we are not saying we do 190 markets. We, we acknowledge that we live in a very special niche, which is emerging markets. We don't do any payments processing in the US. We don't do any payments processing in Western Europe. Uh, so we acknowledge that this is a niche that it's only becoming bigger. So provided that we continue to execute listening very closely to our customers, so to our merchants, uh, and at the same time listening to the uh, preferences from the end users uh, will be okay. We are, we hope we are not going to be chewing more than what we can bite uh, and really continue <laughs> in our markets. Yeah, well, certainly I have to say it's a big bite. Um, I also noticed you've got an office in uh, Shenzhen in, in China. I'm assuming, again, to your point, it's big companies outside of China accessing smaller companies or operating within China. How has that been? So I think we, we, we've recognized a few years back is that obviously uh, global merchants are, are, are looking for growth in, in new ports. Uh, so U.S. companies are, are, are desperate for growth outside of the U.S. Obviously, that growth is probably not going to come from China, given the existing context. By the way, the same applies to Chinese companies. So we understood that trend and we wanted to make sure we were leveraging it. Uh, so we made a, a decision three years back to open our first commercial hub in Shenzhen. Uh, at some point, we added a team in Shanghai. We also have a team in Hong Kong today. And fundamentally, the idea is that uh, there's going to be winners from both sides. And we want to make sure we're leveraging that trend uh, as much as we can. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to uh, watch what you do. Great idea. Incredible growth. Watch this space. Sebastian, come back and talk to us soon. Co-founder sure. and CEO of DLocal there. All right, so after the break cooking new Apple products, but it's the iPhone 12 on today's virtual menu. Find out next. Welcome back to First Move. Apple set to hold a virtual event in around three hours time. The company expected to reveal updates to the Apple Watch and the iPad. Paula Monica has all the details. They've pointed us in that direction by calling it Time Flies, Paul. Notable absence, though, not expecting any details on the iPhone 12. Yeah, we should not get anything about the iPhone 12, the 5G iPhone, what have you. The rumors are that is something that there could be an event perhaps as early as October and maybe a new product being unveiled and released later this year. But today's numbers or today's event really is going to be focused on some of those other peripheral Apple products. 
not so peripheral. I was just looking at uh, CNN businesses right on this. Last year, Apple sold 31 million watches. It's bigger than the entire Swiss watch industry in 2019. This is a big deal now. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I think Apple, to its credit under Tim Cook, has expanded beyond being a one-trick pony, even though that pony is kind of like Secretariat in the iPhone. (laughs) It is a juggernaut. But the good news for Apple is that not just the Apple Watch and obviously things like the iPad still selling, Apple services are really big as well. So I think it's going to be interesting to see if the company talks at all about things like Apple Music, Apple TV+, Plus, some of those products that they hook you and get you to subscribe for, you know, these um, you know, monthly or annual price plans and that's a very big chunk of Apple revenue now and I think it's one of the reasons why Apple stock is still doing really well. It's, you know, up 60% this year, 2 trillion dollar market cap. It's pulled back in the past uh, you know, week and a half or so with uh, you know, a lot of tech stocks, but still one of the bright spots of the market this year. Yes. Can they harness, I'm going for a pony and horse related uh, words now, can they harness excitement over the Apple One bundle, which is what you're talking about there as well? Um, just to cycle back, though, to, to the watches and, and what we're looking at here, I don't think there's ever been a better time perhaps to be talking about health updates, which is something that p- perhaps we're going to hear from them today as well given everybody's super focused on their health and at least tracking their daily health, given uh, we're currently in a pandemic. This is important. It feels important at this moment in time. Yeah, I think it is entirely possible that Apple will choose when it highlights some of the new features of the Apple Watch, what the health implications, the health tracking uh, you know, ramifications are of using the Apple Watch, uh, you know, and having it hooked up to your iPhone or another device. I think a lot of people obviously are very cognizant right now of things like their, you know, their pulse ox, you know, their oxygen level, their uh, heart rate and things of that nature, because we're all in this COVID obsessed world right now. Not everyone has been tested, uh, but you can use mobile devices to help monitor some of the, uh, you know, daily uh, aspects of your life that uh, you know could hint at a health problem, even if it's not necessarily COVID related. Yeah, absolutely. The changes matter too. Paula Monica, three hours and counting. We shall see. Great to have you with us. Thank you. All right, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chasley. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.